traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. zone that we'll be discussing tonight is one of those episodes that never tops best of lists it doesn't really show on worst of lists either it hasn't really entered pop culture like the episodes with the most memorable twists it is pretty much one of those twilight zones that sits somewhere in the middle The book, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grams Jr. will usually have a wide array of trivia and background about an episode. But in this case, there's not a great deal about the production or the actors or the public's response to it. Mark Zickrey in The Twilight Zone Companion calls it competently written but lacking dramatic punch but he does say it's entertaining. So all in all, on the surface, it seems to be maybe one of the good, but more middle of the road Twilight Zones. But if examining Rod Serling's work has taught us anything, it's that very rarely is it just about what's going on on the surface. When I started digging on this one, I really did end up going down the rabbit hole And this middling episode of The Twilight Zone was just the tip of the iceberg. So with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, submitted for your approval is The Story of Dust. California presents Chapter 2 of a new air show. The star of the show, Gene Herschel, in his greatest of all roles. The title of the show, Dr. Christian. The sponsor of the show, the Cheeseboro Manufacturing Company, owners of the trademark Vaseline. In 1950, Rod Serling wrote a script for a radio play and the script was called The Dust by Any Other Name. Martin Grams Jr. in his book Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic says that it's about a character named Abner Bodner who attempts to build a chemical plant that would produce a magic dust. When breathed, the dust would make mortal enemies forget their hatred. As a result of his efforts, Bodner has an accident that costs him his life. 
proving to everyone in town that a man who dies in his belief of peace leaves a larger mark on society. He believed in his dream, not the dust. Unfortunately, the script was submitted to the Dr. Christian radio program, but was rejected and never actually got made. Now I wish I could find more details about the script or even the script itself, but this synopsis is pretty much all I have. But even in this brief summary we can see some of Rod Sailing's hallmarks, a magical element to the story, a strong belief in peace over war and general goodness. As it was never produced in this form, it's been pretty much forgotten. But Rod Sailing didn't forget it, and in 1955, something happened that would transform this story into something else entirely. On the 21st of August 1955, a 14-year-old black boy named Emmett Till walked into Bryant's grocery store in the town of Money, Mississippi. The store was owned by a white couple, 24-year-old Roy Bryant and his 21-year-old wife Carolyn. Accounts of what happened next vary depending on who tells it, but it's generally reported that Carolyn was alone in the store that day, with her sister-in-law in the back, watching the children. Carolyn Bryant would later state that Emmett Till came into the store, and while she was stocking candy onto the shelves, he grabbed her hand and said, How about a date, baby? She goes on to say that after she freed herself from his grasp, Emmett followed her to the cash register, grabbed her waist and said, What's the matter, baby? Can't you take it? She went on to say that he said that she needn't be afraid of him and that he had been with white women before. Carolyn then said that one of Emmett's friends came in and grabbed him by the arm and led him out of the store. Emmett's cousin Simeon Wright stated, however, that he entered the store less than a minute after Emmett and he saw no inappropriate behaviour and heard no lecherous conversation. He said that Emmett paid for his items and then left the store. Carolyn Bryant was allegedly so alarmed by the incident that she ran out of the store to get a gun that was hidden under the seat of their car. While she did this, Emmett whistled, but depending on the account you listen to, this was either a whistle at Carolyn or a whistle at the checkers game that was going on across the street. It was also stated that Emmett would sometimes whistle to alleviate a stutter that he had. Carolyn's husband Roy was away at the time, but when he returned, he heard about the incident and eventually tracked Emmett down. On the 28th of August, Roy Bryant and his half-brother, John William Millam, and another man abducted Emmett from the house where he was staying. They put him in the back of a pickup truck and took him away. Emmett was beaten repeatedly at different locations. He was shot in the head and dumped in a river, weighted down by a fan blade 
that was fastened around his neck with barbed wire. Emmett was reported missing and the Sheriff George Smith questioned Bryant and Millam who admitted they'd taken Emmett but said they had released him on the same night in front of Bryant's store. When Emmett's body was found, his face was disfigured and swollen, and when he was buried, at the insistence of his mother, he was buried in an open casket so that everyone could see what had been done to him. And the pictures are still out there on the internet to see, and they are as disturbing as you would imagine. But that's what Emmett's mother wanted. She wanted to make a point. She wanted people to see what had been done and how disproportionate this was to whatever actually did happen in that store. Bryant and Willem were charged with murder. They were tried and despite overwhelming evidence against them, they were acquitted of Emmett's murder. Now the trial itself is a story that we could spend hours talking about. There are many twists and turns to this whole thing, many miscarriages of justice, many instances of how this wasn't taken as seriously as it should be, purely because Emmett was a black boy and the town kind of closed ranks around the two accused. One of the most bizarre things coming out of this is that in an interview in Look magazine in 1956, after they had been acquitted of Emmett's murder, a journalist called William Huey interviewed Willem and Bryant, and in that interview they confessed to the killing and gave a full account of what happened. Now I'm going to read out Willem's words here and I apologise for the language and give you fair warning that unfortunately there is some offensive language in here. But I think it's important to share it because it really shows what's behind this whole thing. He said, well, what else could we do? He was hopeless. I'm no bully. I never hurt a nigger in my life. I like niggers in their place. I know how to work them. But I just decided it was time a few people got put on notice. As long as I live and can do anything about it, niggers are going to stay in their place. Niggers ain't going to vote where I live. If they did, they'd control the government. They ain't going to go to school with my kids. And when a nigger gets close to mentioning sex with a white woman, he's tired of living. I'm likely to kill him. Me and my folks fought for this country, and we got some rights. I stood there in that shed and listened to that nigger throw that poison at me, and I just made up my mind. Chicago boy, I said, I'm tired of him sending your kind down here to stir up trouble. God damn you, I'm going to make an example of you. Just so everybody can know how me and my folks stand. There is more to that article and it is available online to read and I will put a link to it in the notes of this show. Despite this confession, Bryant and Willem were never convicted 
of Emmett's murder, and no one ever was. It feels almost disrespectful to shorten Emmett's story this way, and I do urge you to seek out the whole thing and read about it. The thing is, even if Carol and Bryant's account is true, and it has been disputed, but even if it is, and Emmett did go in and say those things to her and act in that way, what happened next is so horrifically disproportionate. He was a teenage boy, you know, teenage boys make bad decisions, say stupid things, do stupid things, but if it did happen, that's the extent of what it was. It was stupid and immature behaviour. But then, the retaliation for that was just so overwhelmingly disproportionate that it really just boggles the mind. And now I think the only positive that we can really draw from this is what happened next. I think the only positive that we can really draw from it is that what happened to Emmett shone a light on the racism and the disparity of justice for black people at the time. It stands up there as one of the incidents that really started to give momentum to the civil rights movement. Now the story of Emmett Till appalled Rod Serling and as a writer he decided that he was going to channel that outrage into a story. The story was called Noon on Doomsday and it would air on an anthology show called The United States Steel Hour on April 25th, 1956. The United States Steel Hour, live from New York. Only steel can do so many jobs so well. This trademark, USS, stands for Quality Steel, United States Steel. I'm going to refer you here to an article on rodsailing.com, the website of the Rod Sailing Memorial Foundation, and it's by a writer called Tony Alberella. Now, he wrote uh, all of the Twilight Zone books that uh, contained Rod Sailing's Twilight Zone scripts. And in this article, he reviews the story and gives some background on Noon on Doomsday. Like I say, Rod Serling wanted to channel his outrage at what had happened to Emmett Till and the aftermath of his murder into a story. And in this article, Tony Alberella writes that Rod Serling never actually intended to highlight the racial element of Till's story. What he was focusing on more was the way that the townspeople rallied in support of Bryant and Willem after the murder they even collected money so that the two men could afford defense attorneys. And Rod Serling said, It struck me at the time that the entire trial and its aftermath was simply, they're bastards, but there are bastards. So I wrote a play in which my antagonist was not just a killer, but a regional idea. It was the story of a little town banding together to protect its own against outside condemnation. 
At no point in the conception of my story was there a black and white issue. Alberella writes in his article that Rod Serling mentioned the story to a reporter who suggested that it sounded like the Emmett Till case and the news services began describing it as the story of the Till case. What happened next was that the white citizens councils in the south complained and threatened a boycott and the television network caved. White citizens councils were an associated network of white supremacist organizations in the United States. They were first formed in 1954 but after 1956, they were renamed to the Citizens Councils of America. Perhaps that was to sound more professional, less inflammatory, so that they could maybe do their thing without being accused, being accused of just being out and out racist. It seems to me that they're playing on patriotism, trying to make out there they're just being good patriots, good Americans and trying to lump their racist ideals into what it is to be a patriot, what it is to be a good American. As any real good American knows, that that's not the case, but I think this is what they were trying to play on. Now, one of the functions of these councils was to oppose racial integration in schools and to support segregation in public facilities. So the fact that a television network would actually listen to organisations like this and ask someone like Rod Serling to tone down his story. It's just inconceivable. We've spoken before about how Rod Serling created the Twilight Zone so he could tackle social issues under the guise of science fiction and fantasy. And here, now, we're starting to see why. Here's that very thing at work. And Rod Serling said, The script was gone over with a fine-toothed comb by 30 different people, and I attended at least two meetings a day for over a week, taking down notes as to what had to be changed. My victim could no longer be anyone as specific as an old Jew. He was to be called an unnamed foreigner, and even this was a concession to me since the agency felt that there should not really be a suggestion of a minority at all. All this was too close to the Till case. Further, it was suggested that the killer in the case was not a psychopathic malcontent, just a good, decent American boy momentarily gone wrong. It was a Pier 6 brawl to stop this alteration of character. The script was then dissected and combed so that every word of dialogue that might remotely be Southern in context could be deleted or altered. At no point in the script could the word lynch be used. No social event, institution, way of life, or simple diet could be indicated that might be southern in origin. And to carry the above step even further, a geographical change was made in the script so that instead of being a little town of undesignated location, it was shoved as far north as possible making it a New England town. This was to be a total surrender, and there would be no concessions made, even to logic. Alberella goes on to write that, although Noon on Doomsday is compromised, the final product still has some value. 
and I recommend that you read that article. I will put a link in the show notes for the full story. It wasn't until 2008 that the uncensored original script of Noon on Doomsday was read for the first time at Ithaca College, where Rod Serling used to teach, and it was read at a conference about his life and his legacy. So Noon on Doomsday was focusing on the aftermath of Emma Till's murder, the case that followed, and the way people closed ranks to protect their own. But another story from Serling would draw from other parts of the case. Now we've spoken about that unproduced radio play, The Dust by Any Other Name. It doesn't really come into play just yet, but we might start to be seeing how this is going to evolve. Rod Serling was to create another story with the word dust in the title, but this time it was called A Town Has Turned to Dust. Playhouse 90. Tonight starring Rod Steiger, William Shatner, Faye Spain, James Gregory. Playhouse 90. Brought to you by Camel. Far and away the world's largest selling cigarette today. Rich in flavor, mild to smoke. And by your gas company in cooperation with gas producers, pipeline companies, and gas appliance and equipment manufacturers who bring the modern miracles of gas service to your home. And by Allstate, the company with more than 4 million policyholders who have discovered that you're in good hands with Allstate. First broadcast on the 19th of June, 1958. Written by Rod Serling and directed by John Frankenheimer. Playhouse 90 was a 50s American anthology show, of which there were many, that ran from 1956 to 1960. It's not a science fiction anthology as such, although it did occasionally go there, like with the 1957 episode, The Star Wagon, which was about an inventor who invents a time machine. Overall though, the stories were dramatic. It's an important show for Rod Serling because the second episode is his much acclaimed story, Requiem for a Heavyweight, which was one of the things that really put him on the map. He would in all write 11 episodes of Playhouse 90, one of which is that next step in the evolution of that story that he wrote back in 1950, The Dust by Any Other Name. This time it's called The Town Has Turned to Dust, and there's a certain amount of star power behind it. Apart from being written by Rod Serling, it's directed by John Frankenheimer, John Frankenheimer's career, it had its ups and downs because he was a busy director, but you know, we have classics like The Manchurian Candidate on the list. We also have that 1996 disaster, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is famously bad, but that's probably a podcast in itself. Frankenheimer did 27 episodes of Playhouse 90, and we'll talk about whether he was successful with this one in a moment. In front of the camera, there's also some real star power. 
some of which has some Twilight Zone connections. William Shatner plays Jerry Paul, who is a shop owner in a small western town. The sheriff of that town, Harvey Denton, is played by Rod Steiger, very prolific actor who was in everything from the Amityville Horror to Mars Attacks. Another Twilight Zone actor in a smaller part was Malcolm Atterbury, who played Henry Fate in Mr. Denton on Doomsday, and we'll see him again in No Time Like the Past. I'm going to put out a quick spoiler warning for this one because I do think it's worth seeing and it is easily found out there on the internet, on YouTube and so on, in its complete form. And I do recommend that you check it out and then come back because I'm going to talk about the whole thing from beginning to end. For this version of the story, there's no mention of the magical dust that when breathed makes enemies forget their grievances. There's no element of fantasy to it at all, this is purely a dramatic piece. Now as I go through this, just try and think back to that story of Emmett Till and you can kind of start to see where some of these points in the story are coming from. It's now 11 o'clock at night. Two deputies and Sheriff Harvey Denton stand guard in the tiny one-story adobe building that's the town jail. It's been a long wait. It began at two o'clock this afternoon. That was when the streets started to empty. Since that moment, there has been no one to be seen. But inside darkened stores and in the shadows between the buildings, there's an unspoken knowledge that men are gathering to mete out a faster brand of justice than that prescribed by law. Dempseyville's a slow place, made sluggish by the heat and the sand, the drought. It's a slowness that's heavier, more stifling than the hot sand that comes in off the desert. But in matters of justice, Dempseyville's impatient. In matters of retribution, Dempseyville is in a hurry. In matters of law and order, Dempseyville isn't about to wait. In an Old West town, a young Mexican man is held in the prison, accused of robbery and assault on a lady called Anna Mae Paul, the wife of Jerry Paul, who is played by William Shatner. As the show opens, an angry mob led by Jerry Paul is advancing on the jailhouse to get revenge and the sheriff eventually steps aside and then the mob take the man out and lynch him. Go ahead! Let him hang there a while. Let his people take a good look at him. Let him know there are two sides in this town. One right and one wrong. Let him take one look at this and never forget which is which. Oh, you all done good. You done real good. Flag. Hey, hey, what's the matter, Harvey? Ain't you got a stomach for an execution? Hey. And it was something that had to be done. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. You made sure that, didn't you? You must be tired with your. Talking in your speech, make. Hey, what's the matter, Harvey? You unhappy? Yeah? Some. Some, huh? 
I wish you'd just, just do me a favor and just, just remind me of what we hang him for. Well, Harvey, we all know that, don't we? He tried to rob my store and he tried to beat up my wife. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. One thing just occurred to me. What's that, Harvey? Never once did we get to hear his side. So, unlike later versions of the story, which we will talk about, this one starts out full of energy. There isn't the lethargy that we'll see later on. It's a town where the sheriff is very ineffectual and weak, and Shatner's Jerry Paul is the real power in town. He's not shown as being wealthy, but he owns the town store, so he has sway and influence and a strong economic position he's an important figure and coupled with that he's a bully so a combination of these two things mean that if he goes a particular way people will usually follow the day after poncho is lynched in a fit of drunken mob mentality the town wakes up sobered by the whole experience The people are a little distant from Jerry. The sheriff begins to look at himself with a real amount of shame at what he's allowed to happen. Even Jerry tries to put on a cheery face to wash away the bad taste left by what he's done. All the while, we have the Mexican community as well. This community have seemed to just accept their lot in life as second-class citizens, but their rage at the injustice that's taken place starts to come to the surface. Now, Jerry tries to appease the Mexican community by putting on a sale in his store, but even when he's doing this, he's casually insulting them, saying he'll put all the sparkly, shiny things on sale because Mexicans are like children and they like that kind of thing. It's kind of an excruciating performance by William Shatner, but I mean that in a good way. It's very uncomfortable watching him try to be happy and jolly and getting this sale ready when only the night before he's committed murder. And it's here that the actual truth comes out. I've described Jerry Paul as a bully, and that's particularly evident when it comes to his wife, Anna May, who is played by... Spain. You made a vice, aren't you? Before we were married, I used to think you were a woman. A little blonde China doll. Did I hurt you? I didn't mean to hurt you, Anna May. Hey there. There's a reporter in town. I'm a St. Louis newspaper. He's going to put our names in the paper. I never had my name in the paper before, did you? You gonna ask questions? Oh, sure, you'll ask questions. And you'll answer them. I don't want to answer any more questions, Jerry. You'll answer them, Anna May. Now, uh, let's go over it again. You were asleep, and what happened? No, Jerry, I can't. I what can't happened, say- Anna May? What happened? Come on. Yes. I saw this person. 
you said. I heard a noise in the store. You heard a noise in the store. And you came out and you saw what? I saw this person. This Mexican. And what was he doing? What was he doing? Nothing. He wasn't doing What that. was he doing? He was taking things off the shelf. He was taking things off the shelf, wasn't he? That's right. That, all right. Now. He was taking things off the shelf. And he saw you looking. And what did he do then? What did he do then? He hit me. He hit you, didn't he? And then he ran right up that... Forward thinking as ever, Rod Sailing is putting on screen a very accurate description of a controlling and abusive relationship. Anna May is downtrodden, controlled and broken by Jerry. But because of her situation and Jerry's status, she stays with him, putting on a mask of normalcy for the people in town. You can imagine that when they were both young, you know, if Jerry had a bit of money, you know, a bit of prestige in town, she was the young, beautiful girl, they're probably the kind of couple that gets pushed together as everyone as kind of a bit of a figurehead of the community. And then as reality sets in and their relationship, then things start to, to crumble and fall apart. So lonely, sad and downtrodden, when Anna May is shown some attention by the young Mexican man, someone who is warm and kind, she responds. They don't have an affair as such, but she enjoys being around someone who isn't like Jerry, someone who is good to her. And from what we learn, all this relationship between them seems to be is that they speak nothing more than that. But when Jerry finds out, it sends him into a rage. And the story about Poncho robbing the store is a fabrication. And the injury that Anna May has on her face looks a lot like it might have been caused by the ring on Jerry's finger. Nice little boy. You go over there. And you tell your mommy and your daddy that Mr. Paul's got a store open. And he's got a big sale going on. Now you go over there and tell him. Go on. Go on now. Go on. You people get out of here. Go on! Get off my property. I don't want your kind in my store anymore. You! I mean it. What am I gonna do? The other night, there was excitement. Everybody... I held those guys right in the palms of my hand. And now it's just like it was. Just... It's like it was. I ain't gonna live and die in this oven, I'll tell you that. No, sir. I ain't gonna spend the rest of my life waiting for nickel sales. Huh? So Jerry puts on his sale, but when he's rejected by the Mexican community and shunned by the townspeople, his mask begins to slip, and the only way he can win them over again is to start to play on their prejudices, turn them back into the angry mob again, Things come full circle, but this time it's Poncho's brother who takes refuge in the jailhouse, and the sheriff isn't about to make the same mistake again and let the mob come after him. In the end, both the sheriff, Harvey Denton, and Jerry Paul shoot each other in the street. This is a great piece of television. It doesn't look as good as your average Twilight Zone. It's got a quite a stagey atmosphere to it, but it's the writing and performances that really raise it. 
sometimes in the Twilight Zone we find characters speaking really with Rod Serling's voice, that very poetic dialogue. And I don't mean that as a criticism. In 25 minutes, if he has something to say, he has to get his characters to really speak that message in a certain way. And we sort of start to describe that as very Serling-esque. A Town Has Turned to Dust has a running time of about an hour and ten minutes, so there's a bit more time to let things breathe. The dialogue is still great, but that message, apart from maybe in a few instances, can be spread out a bit more. There's a real tension to the whole thing. The racial tension of the Mexican community who have been quite downtrodden for so long, but have just put up with it. Now that's starting to reach boiling point. Then there's Jerry who riled up the townspeople to commit murder. And the morning after when everyone's sober and separated from the mob, people are a bit more reflective about what they've done and a bit wary of Jerry. William Shatner is very good in it. He puts on this mask of nobility for the town as this figurehead in the community that mask just hides what a nasty person he is. He's racist. He abuses his wife. He's quite thoroughly rotten. But the standout performance for me goes to Rod Steiger as Sheriff Harvey Denton. He's in a position of authority, but he doesn't really hold the power in town. That's, that's Jerry. Sheriff Denton is weary and beaten down, but after Poncho is killed, he realises how low he's gone. He's got no pride left in himself anymore for what he has let happen. But it's this that maybe pushes him to now begin to step up and do better and do the right thing because he's got nothing left to lose. He's got no pride left. It's a magnetic performance by Rod Steiger. Now again, remember what we said about Rod Serling creating the Twilight Zone to hide his message in plain sight so that he could talk about social issues without having to change things for the network. Now, Rod Serling's original teleplay apparently was changed drastically by censors to the point that Serling himself was furious with the finished project. He said they chopped it up like a room full of butchers at work on a steer. And Martin Grams Jr. writes in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that it was meant to be a contemporary piece and not a Western, and it was originally a black man in the cell and not a Mexican. He says that actually it was a rewrite of a script that Serling wrote a year before called Aftermath and in order to get it on Playhouse 90 Serling changed the character's ethnicity to Mexican and changed the time period. Now I've read conflicting accounts of that but we'll go with Martin Krams Jr. You know he's a man who has written probably the most definitive book on the Twilight Zone so we'll take what he says there. But censored or not it's still a bold and very valuable piece of television that was highlighting the ugliness of racism when few people really were. In the New York Times in 1958, the writer Jack Gould said, 
Mr. Sailing's original work, A Town Has Turned to Dust, was a raw, tough, and at the same time, deeply moving outcry against prejudice. There were two of the season's superlative performances by Rod Steiger and William Shatner, and John Frankenheimer's mounting of the outspoken drama was simply superb. And there's a whole article there on rodsailing.com with that full review on it. So I think it is a testament to Rod Sailing's writing that even if it was butchered and watered down, the message is still there and the quality still shines through. And at the end of the episode, when the sheriff shoots Jerry and in turn is shot himself, he gives a passionate speech, which sounds like pure Rod Sailing. You had no choice, Sheriff. Yes, it did. We all had a choice. That's one of the treasures we had. The privilege of choice. That means that we can be satisfied with what we got, or we can blame someone else for what we got. And that's why Jerry Paul is dead now. Do you get this? Do any of you understand? Every time that you lynch a 19-year-old Mexican boy, and every time that you put a old man in a gun you ain't ending nothing you understand that you ain't ending nothing you're just beginning it and every time you bury a lynch victim you're burying part of yourself Padre. Oh, 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 Padre. Padre. If you take confessions from infidels. I can listen, my son, but I can give you no absolution. Padre. For what I've done, there's no absolution. I'm not looking for forgiveness. For, for what I've done. And for what this town has done. There is no forgiveness. I let them come in and take Pancho Rivera because the mob all wore the face of Harvey Denton. And they were led by a Harvey Denton. Christmas Eve, 16 years ago, when this town was rotten in the heat, 
And we thought that if we did get any water, we wouldn't know what it was anyway. Dempseyville listened to another voice that night. And it was mine. With 20 men? With hood. Some of you. Some of you may remember it. Well, I was one of the 20. I was the one that kept telling him to do it. You see, Patre, there it is, isn't it? There's the hunger for the niche. I wanted to be somebody. So I, I decided who the victim should be. I pointed to an old man. I wanted to be somebody, so I led them off. And I pointed to a poor old quaking man. And he kept asking me, Padre, he kept asking me why. And when they took him, and they stuffed him into a gunny sack like a piece of meat. He kept asking me why. You understand what that means, any of you? He kept asking why. Why? So A Town Has Turned to Dust is available on a DVD called An Evening in the Zone, which is a collection of non-Twilight Zone Rod Serling projects. So far we've had an unproduced radio play, The Dust by Any Other Name, which then led to the Playhouse 90 episode being the first produced version of the story. But before we end up back in the Twilight Zone, we first have to take a trip to the other side of the Atlantic. This side of the Atlantic. Where the BBC had their own anthology series called The Sunday Night Play. It began in January 1960 and ran for four series, to use the British way of saying things. It was a who's who of British talent at the time and many of the names from the show would go on to bigger things. Interestingly though, episode 25 of that show was written by an American. That American was Rod Serling, and the episode was called A Town Has Turned to Dust. First broadcast on the 3rd of July 1960, written by Rod Serling and directed by Alvin Rakoff. So just two years after its Playhouse 90 debut, Rod Serling's story was then remade for British television. Now to tell you more about this, I just need to go off on a bit of a tangent. If you're a fan of the 
classic science fiction show, Doctor Who, then you might be aware that there are some episodes of Doctor Who from this era, the 1960s, that are considered to be lost. So Doctor Who fans will know better than most as to why this is. So I took this explanation from a website called DoctorWho.tv. And they say, to understand the wiping of Doctor Who and many other 1960s TV series, one has to look at how television was made and valued at the time. On Doctor Who, an episode would be recorded directly to videotape from studio, with as much of the work as we would now term post-production occurring at the same time. This meant music, location filming, the titles and credits, and model or effect shots were pre-recorded and played into the studio recording bar some small edits. This was essentially a finished program. The videotape version was transmitted on the BBC often after a very short period of time as little as two or three weeks post recording. Most tapes were then sent to BBC Enterprises for tele-recording onto film a much more durable and commonly used medium to be sold to international broadcasters. Once both a UK transmission had occurred and an overseas sales film copy had been created, if neither Enterprises nor the BBC had any further interest in the episodes, the original videotapes were cleared for wiping. So there's the explanation, and unfortunately the Sunday Night Play appears to have suffered the same fate as those early episodes of Doctor Who. And from what I can gather, only 15 episodes still exist. With the popularity of Doctor Who, the search for those lost episodes never ends. But I don't think there's the same desire there to find those lost episodes of the Sunday Night Play. Doctor Who episodes will occasionally surface in foreign countries from when the TV companies bought them from the BBC back in the 60s. So there is a possibility that sitting in a box somewhere is the BBC version of A Town Has Turned to Dust. But the unfortunate thing is, nobody's really looking for it. So sadly I can't review or play any clips from this version. There isn't a huge amount of information about it out there. I imagine with only a two year turnaround it's probably pretty much the same in script as the Playhouse 90 version as Rod Serling is the only credited writer on it and Martin Grams Jr. writes that it was almost word for word with the Playhouse 90 version. But what really saddens me is that Despite the rest of the cast being different, Rod Steiger reprises his role as Sheriff Harvey Denton in this version too, and I would have loved to have held these two versions up together to see what the differences were between each show, to see how Rod Steiger performed it this time around. I think it would have been a really fascinating experience, but unfortunately it's not to be. What is also not to be is that a radio version of A Town Has Turned to Dust was also broadcast in Australia in December of that year, but I can't find any confirmation of whether that version still survives either. 
So to keep count, we now have two radio versions, one produced, one unproduced, but lost, and two television versions, one that survives, and one that is lost. But we wouldn't have to wait long for the next step in the evolution of this story that ended up on screen. This time, the story was reworked, and that magical dust element reintroduced. The title was shortened to simply dust, and the next stop was the Twilight Zone. There was a village built of crumbling clay and rotting wood, and it squatted ugly under a broiling sun like a sick and mangy animal wanting to die. This village had a virus shared by its people. It was the germ of squalor, of hopelessness, of a loss of faith. For the faithless, the hopeless, the misery-laden, there is time, ample time, to engage in one of the other pursuits of men. They begin to destroy themselves. First broadcast on the 6th of January, 1961. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Douglas Hayes. This is quite rare for a Twilight Zone episode because there's no opening scene before Rod Serling begins his opening narration. He starts it the second that the opening theme closes. I've spoken many times about how I love when his narration is worked into the shot in interesting ways. And the director, Douglas Hayes, seems to agree because this is a good one. We see some cowboys setting up a couple of heavy sacks on a gallows, attaching them to the rope so that the trap door could be tested. The trap door that a person would usually be stood on before it opened below them and they fell with only the rope around their neck to break their fall. And the moment that those sacks fall, we cut to a shot and Rod Sailing is there, stood in front of the gallows. It's a great shot, and in the August 1982 edition of Twilight Zone magazine, Douglas Hayes said, I liked to tie the Twilight Zone introductions into the show. If I possibly could get hold of Rod, if he wasn't in New York or somewhere, I would try to get him in with the actors and with the people on the set. I thought that Rod's appearance in those things was part, really was the Twilight Zone. Where he appeared from and how he appeared was important. For example, in Dust, we worked out the thing where they were just testing the gallows. The sacks flopped down, bam, with a tremendous impact, and they hit the end of the rope. And as we pan down with it, we bring in Rod Sailing, who was standing there at the base of the gallows. And he goes on to say, I mean, where he appeared from and how he appeared was important. I had fun thinking of ways to bring Rod into those. Following that opening, we get a view of the town. Dry, rundown, desolate. A really great set. And when the characters start to come in, things are a little familiar, but also a bit different. A peddler named Sykes walks into town and starts to taunt a young Mexican man. Luis Gallegas, who is in a cell in the sheriff's office. <laughs> Young Mr. Gallegas, I believe. Now, this is a very special day, isn't it? Now, let's see. What is this special day, eh? Ah, 
Now I remember. It has just this moment come back to me. Today, you're gonna get hanged. <laughs> Today, young Mr. Gallegos, killer of children, dances on the gallows. <laughs> now this time round, the sheriff of the town, Sheriff Koch, he's very lethargic and very in fitting with the kind of sleepy atmosphere in the town. And Douglas Hayes said to Mark Zickery in the Twilight Zone Companion, Dust was about a town that had sunk into the dust. In effect, it had no energy. The people there were listless. They were going to allow this man to be hanged simply because it was easier than not doing it. And he says about the sheriff played by John Larch, John Larch came in and I changed him quite a bit because he was written as a strong sheriff and I played him as a sheriff who had no energy at all, who represented the listlessness of that town. It was hard for John to do because he's a man with energy. Like I just mentioned, the actor who plays Sheriff Koch is John Larch, who we've met before in the episode Perchance to Dream, where he played Dr. Elliot Rathman. And we'll see him again in maybe his most iconic Twilight Zone performance in the episode It's a Good Life, where he plays Mr. Fremont, the father of Anthony, the child with the godlike powers. I like John Larch, he has a certain presence to him and I enjoy him in this. I think what I've seen him before, what I've seen him in, which admittedly isn't much beyond Twilight Zone, he does tend to be cast as strong, forthright characters with a sense of authority about them. And here, like Douglas Hayes says, he plays the sheriff as tired and worn down, but he still has that inner strength to him. When Sykes comes into the office and starts taunting Luis, he doesn't take any nonsense from him. So in contrast to Sheriff Harvey Denton, this sheriff does have a backbone and a bit of steel to him. But the misery of the town has just drained the energy out of him. Our other main character here is Peter Sykes, played by Thomas Gomez. Like John Larch, we've seen him before in The Twilight Zone when he played the very charming devil in Escape Clause. Then he was very dapper, very clean, very well-mannered. This time round, he's the complete opposite. But he brings a, a much-needed energy to the show, and that's not a criticism because Obviously, the listlessness of the town is very much by design, but this is a guy who goes from town to town, so he doesn't have that same kind of downtrodden outlook. He's like a ball of energy. He's a despicable character, but it's a very enjoyable performance by Thomas Gomez in his last Twilight Zone episode. But the year before his death, in 1971, he was in the sequel to the film that I often call my favourite Twilight Zone movie, Planet of the Apes. And that was Beneath the Planet of the Apes. In the evolution of the story of Dust, Sykes is a new character. There's no Jerry Paul or equivalent this time round. But you get the impression that with Sykes, he's the kind of man who really just enjoys other people's misery. <laughs> There's going to be a funeral procession down that street, Gallegos. You better go to the window and watch. They're going to be burying the little girl that you mangled under your wagon. Ah, yeah, you're sobered up now, eh? You remember the little girl, don't you? 
You got stinking drunk and you raced your wagon down that street. And what you did to that poor little girl... Ah! Ah, 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 Gallegos. Hey, you'll have plenty of chance to move around this afternoon. You'll be able to kick and kick and kick. <laughs> so here's another difference from its predecessor, A Town Has Turned to Dust. In that version, the imprisoned man was innocent of any crime. But this time round, Louis Gallegos has done something quite terrible. He's caused the death of a little girl by recklessly driving his wagon when he was drunk. It's an interesting change because it's easy to have sympathy for a wrongly accused man. But what about someone who isn't wrongly accused? Someone who has done something terrible? So it's a brave choice by Rod Serling, so we'll see how it plays out. But before we do that, the man behind the bars, Luis Gallegos, is played by John Alonso. And when you look at his credits, you see that he didn't have any acting credits beyond 1969. And the reason being, he was actually a very successful cinematographer. He worked on the cult car movie Vanishing Point, the Roman Polanski classic Chinatown, Brian De Palma's Scarface, and in an amusing twist, considering that the previous incarnation of his character was killed by William Shatner, he was the director of photography on Star Trek Generations, the film where Shatner's Captain Kirk was killed. So the pieces are in place now. We have our prisoner in the cell. We have our sheriff. We have Sykes staring up trouble. But what really strikes me about Dust is that a town has turned to dust was so obviously about racism. Here the focus isn't so much about that, and I'll talk about where I think it actually is later on. But race is touched upon a little. I don't touch dog meat, Sykes. You talk big behind a badge, Kutch. It just sounds big to you because you're a midget, Sykes. You know, I always had a little question about you. You always had a thing for foreigners and strays, but you're mighty tight-lipped when it comes to one of your own. You're not my own, Sykes, so don't claim any kinship. That's what that boy in there, he had his trial, and today he's going to swing for it. There's nothing in his sentence that says he's got to be tormented by a pig who sells trinkets at funerals. Go on, Sykes, get out of here. I won't dwell too much on the intricacies of the story this time round because we're doing things a little differently in this episode, but there is one scene that I think is worthy of mention. Luis Gallegos' father approaches the parents of the little girl who his son killed as they walk in her funeral procession and he asks his daughter to pass on his apologies. My father wishes me to tell you that. My father wishes for me to tell you that his heart is broken. That if he could, if he could give his own life in return. His own life in return, Estrellita. His own life in return. He would. He would do so with great willingness. He. He understands. Get out of the way, little girl. Get out of the way. Can't you see? Can't you see that we're burying our daughter today? 
can't you see that we're burying our daughter today? And I think that line says a lot. It says today is not the day for us to make you feel better by accepting your apology. Nothing that anyone could come to us with is going to have any meaning for us on a day like today. We're burying our daughter. So what does this whole thing mean? What's it all about? Like I said earlier, a town has turned to dust was really about racism. This time, I think it's more about poverty and what poverty can breed. And it's this speech by Gallego's father that really exemplifies this. You never been drunk, Mr. Sheriff. You never felt such misery rising in you that salvation seemed to look at you from only out of a bottle. You never felt pain, such pain, that you had to ride through the night, not look behind you. My son was hungry, and he felt such pain, and he drank too much. He rode down the street, not looking, not seeing. And he had a sadness, deep inside. Sadness that there was not enough to eat. Sadness that they had no work. Sadness that the earth all around him was growing barren in the sun. He did not see the little girl. He never saw her for an instant. So Luis is a man who wanted to work, who wanted to provide and couldn't do it because of where he lived, maybe because of the community he was part of. So again, I guess there is this element of race because unfortunately that's what certain ethnic groups face in some areas and that's why areas become ghettos, because there are no opportunities or prospects and the bottom line is poverty breeds poverty. You hear of the homeless person who can't get a job because they haven't got an address. When you're poor, it's more difficult to get credit, even though it might be credit for the thing that will help you get out of poverty. If you do get credit, it costs you more. All of these things are kind of working against you when you're poor, and that's in the modern world, never mind way back then. So it's why things like drugs and alcohol become a way of life, because what else are you going to do? And I think that's maybe where sailing is going with this, but it's not necessarily just the Mexican community that are afflicted by this because the whole town seems to be dying. There's absolutely no spirit here. Like I mentioned in that Douglas Hayes quote where he said, they were going to allow this man to be hanged simply because it was easier than not doing it. So Sykes convinces Gallego's father to buy some magic dust, dust that is supposed to turn hate to love, but unbeknownst to him, it's just dust from the floor. And when Luis is to be hanged, his father starts throwing the dust around in the hope that the magic will have some effect. Then something quite miraculous happens. As the trapdoor opens for Luis to fall through it, the rope around his neck snaps and he survives. And the parents of the little girl decide that one victim is enough and they let Luis live. 
Now, Mark Zickery in the Twilight Zone Companion says that this episode is enjoyable, but it lacks dramatic punch. I can kind of see where he's coming from. It seems that it's such a straight-ahead story that by the time the Twilight Zone element comes into it, it's pretty much over. And when it does, well, is it really something supernatural or fantastic at all? Did that dust actually have any power? Possibly not. A rope breaking is improbable, but it's not impossible. Now, I don't mind that the element to it might just be a chance occurrence, and this chance occurrence has given people some pause for thought. You know, is this really justice? Is this really what we want our daughter's death to mean? It is a very emotive subject, and it's very brave of Rod Serling to include it, because you do run the risk of the audience just saying, well, no, he deserves it. Let him hang, he's killed a child. If the story isn't good, then people don't think. And I think it is good enough to make people think. But it is such a lethargic and downbeat episode that without that spark of Twilight Zone magic, then I can see why maybe it doesn't top people's best of lists. But I do like it. And even in the end, Sykes gets touched by the magic a little bit. Why? Don't understand. Why? It must be magic. <laughs> That's what she is. Magic. <laughs> so with two radio versions now, two television versions, and then the Twilight Zone, you might think that maybe we've seen the last of that dusty old western town. But you'd be wrong. As I sit here speaking to you, I'm looking up at a row of books that all bear the name The Twilight Zone. Some are about the making of the show, but many more are anthologies that are either adapted Twilight Zone episodes or short stories that you could describe as Twilight Zone-esque. The first Twilight Zone book was from Rod Serling himself, and it was called From the Twilight Zone and featured adaptations of Twilight Zone stories and in this book was yet another version of Dust. It was a village built of crumbling clay and rotting wood. It squatted ugly under a broiling sun, like a sick, mangy animal waiting to die. It had a name, but the name was of little consequence. It had an age, but few people cared how old it was. It lay somewhere in the southwest on the fringe of a desert, a two block long main street lined with squalid frame stores and a few adobe huts. They shook and wheezed and groaned like old, tired men whenever a wagon went by, which was seldom, raising the dust and leaving it to hang like a fog. First published in 1960, written by Rod Serling and published by Nelson Doubleday Incorporated. 
Now we've seen in the past that sometimes when a Twilight Zone was adapted for a book, Sailing would fix a problem that he perceived to be in the original script. We saw this in Where Is Everybody? Other times it was simply quite a literal adaptation of the story, and this is one of those times, but there is a slight extra detail that I'll come to in a moment. So to call it another version may be pushing things slightly, but it is published in another medium, so I think it should be included. Now the book itself, which I have a copy of here, like I said, it's called From the Twilight Zone. The printed publishing date is 1960, which was actually the year before the episode aired, so there might be some sort of crossover there, I'm not sure. But it's a nice thing to have, it's a hardback book with a quite minimalist dust jacket on the cover which shows the, the Twilight Zone iconic starry night with a clock face in the corner and the words from the Twilight Zone on it. Now I didn't pay a great deal for this, I think I found it on eBay, but it's, it's a really nice item. It's nice to have a book that was actually completely written by Rod Serling and published when the Twilight Zone was still on. If you can't track it down though, it's been republished in various forms over the years, most recently by Anne Sailing's own book company, Rod Sailing Books. And I think they have this book split over two volumes called Stories from the Twilight Zone and More Stories from the Twilight Zone. And they have new introductions by Anne Sailing. So it is what it is, with the same story, same start, same middle, same end. But there is a little more at the end of the story about what happens next. And it closes like this. The square was empty, the sun had disappeared over the vast horizon that stretched all around the town. An empty tobacco bag lay near the gallows. Soon it would be swallowed up by the desert as all things were swallowed up. The town, still ugly, and still full of squalor, prepared itself for the night. It was small, misery-laden, and this had been the day of a hanging, of little historical consequence really, but if there was any moral to be drawn, it might be said that in any quest for magic, in any search for sorcery, it might be wise to first check the human heart. For inside this deep place is a wizardry that costs far more than a few pieces of gold. It was of course a fact that no one in the town could articulate this thought, but there was a feeling, there was a mood. And there were questions now, where before no questions had existed. So the town let the starry night enfold it and went to sleep. The next day the town would again give battle to the sun and the sand. The gallows would be torn down. But the day of the hanging, this had been committed to memory. So what do we have in our count now? We have two radio versions. We have two television versions of A Town Has Turned to Dust. We have the Twilight Zone version and this literary adaptation. So with six versions of the story out there, Rod Serling left this particular story in 1960. Maybe he felt at the time that he'd explored it all he could, 
Or maybe he felt that dust in the twilight zone was a version that he was happy with. We'll never know. But what we do know is that he'd never again return to this dusty town. But someone else might. <laughs> In the year 2215 AD, I left the New Angeles asteroid and traveled into outer space for the first time, eager for my first glimpse of the planet Earth. It had been a hundred years since the departure of our race, and Earth was now off-limits to most people. I was one of the few reporters ever given clearance to return. As a schoolboy, I'd seen pictures of the Earth as it once had been, blue and white, pure as a raindrop suspended in space. Now it was a dying planet, without rain, without water, encircled by a poisonous ring of dust and debris. But I wanted to see it firsthand, so I sold my editor on an idea, a story about the men who mine the only valuable commodity left on Earth, scrap metal. Speculators calling themselves dwellers had returned to Earth, and in a series of bloody battles called the Casino Wars, had defeated the indigenous people they called drivers. Victorious dwellers forced drivers to scavenge the ruined cities for scrap and melt it down to meet critical metal shortages on the New Angeles asteroid. I had been on a scrap convoy, watching drivers salvage metal in the radioactive ruins of old Los Angeles. Now we were headed back to Carbon, the major scrap depot and smelting town on a high western mesa. First broadcast on the 27th of June 1998, written by Rod Serling and directed by Rob Nilsson. This is a 1998 television movie of A Town Has Turned to Dust, and it was made by the Sci-Fi Channel. I said earlier written by Rod Serling, as he's actually the only credited writer on the film, and the front cover of the DVD certainly makes the most of Rod Serling's name. But clearly someone else has adapted it because the characters, apart from the odd occasion, aren't speaking Rod Serling's words. It stars Ron Perlman as Jerry Paul, who, like William Shatner, is the real power in this futuristic town. Sheriff Harvey Denton is played by Stephen Lang, a very prolific actor who you may remember as Miles Quaritch in Avatar. Gabriel Olds plays a character called Hanafi, who is a reporter. Now, the character of Hanafi, the reporter, was also in the original Playhouse 90 version, played by James Gregory. In that version, he, he was quite on the outside of the story. He kind of observes what's going on in the town, is very disapproving of Jerry Paul. Maybe he was inspired by the journalist who interviewed Emma Till's killers in Luck magazine. I don't know, but it doesn't really have any influence or drive in the story in any way. In this version, Hanafi has a little more to do in... In a sense, he's our way into this universe, into this town. But still, the story could probably play out in the same way without him being there. In this version of the story, the prisoner in the cell is an American Indian by the name of Tommy Tallbear, played by Zane McLarnon, and not a Mexican like he was in the original. 
He's in jail for the suspected rape of Jerry Paul's wife and robbery of the store. So it seems in modern times they were able to be a bit more explicit with the severity of the prisoner's crimes. So the racial tensions in town in this version are between the American Indian population and everyone else. Now we're supposed to think that this has all came about because of the casino wars that were mentioned in that opening monologue. And everyone is, I guess, prejudiced towards the American Indians because of these wars and so on. At one point, two black men even make a comment about how they can drink in a bar, but the American Indians can't. So it's not particularly well thought out or presented, and it is one of the problems with this version. We supply them with everything they need. Food, water, wages. And I don't understand what I get back. Me, I'd be grateful. I'd be beholden. That's just me, I'm a giver. I asked you here today to help me get justice. But not because it's me, not because it's my wife, not because we're looking for trouble, not because we dwellers like violence, no. Because it's right. What do you say, Bert? I say it's right! It's right! It's right. You hear that, dwellers? It's right. It's right. So what does that make us? Well, come on. Right. 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 So what are we gonna do, Jerry? Another difference in this version is the past friendship between Jerry Paul and Sheriff Dent is really played up and fleshed out a bit more. What's the matter, Wavy? You got no stomach for law and order? Refresh my memory, will you, Jerry? Why did we hang him? Why? He tried to rob my store and he tried to rape my wife. Well, we were so busy having fun that not once, Jerry. What? Not once did we get a chance to hear his side of the story. And that reminds me of something. I just can't remember what. They make a lot of the fact that back in the day they were good friends and they've both made their life here and took different roads. Denton became the sheriff, but Jerry Paul became the real power in town. And this is where Jerry Paul being played by Ron Perlman was quite a good move. Because of his manner and physicality, he really convinces us as this overbearing bully who could use force to get what he wants, if, if that's what he has to do. Now, don't get me wrong, William Shatner was very good as Jerry Paul, but he was a very young, handsome man. Whereas Perlman is a bit more of an imposing presence. But that kind of works against him in the scenes where he starts to talk about putting on a sail to appease the Indians. We're gonna have a big sale. Big, big water sale before all the excitement wears off. We're gonna put some of them chrome tail lights we got over at the Eastern Scrap Run, put them in the window. Shatner is probably better in those scenes because 
outwardly he wants to appear to be the respectable man so it seems to make sense for him to do that in reality though he abuses his wife behind closed doors and he runs the town because he has the best economic position in town whereas you get the impression that Ron Perlman's Jerry Paul wouldn't really care about appeasing anyone now the underlying incident this time round to the whole thing was that Jerry Paul's wife was actually having an affair with Tommy. She really welcomed his affection and it's for this reason that Jerry was so keen to kill him. If nothing else, it's, it's interesting to see what these two great actors, William Shatner and Ron Perlman, bring to it. So apart from a few alterations like what I've mentioned, it's pretty much the same story as the Playhouse 90 version, but unfortunately, it's just not as good. Ron Perlman and Stephen Lang are both decent, but there just isn't the same emotion or truth to the whole thing. Apart from the odd sentence here or there, these aren't Rod Serling's words. And if you're going to change what Rod Serling wrote, then you better do a good job of it, otherwise it just comes off as cheap imitation which unfortunately sums up this production. It was made by the Sci-Fi Channel and it's set in the future so it qualifies as science fiction. But you have to ask yourself why? The fact that it's science fiction doesn't alter the story at all. There's nothing that changes because it's set in the future and technology is more advanced. It's still the same story, whether it's in the Old West or on a ravaged Earth, you know, you might as well remake Rocky and set it in the future for all the point it has to it. But despite what I've said, it is watchable, it's not awful, because it's the same story, so there is something there. But while the Playhouse 90 version was really tightly paced with a real tension to it, this just seems a bit flabby and cheap and quite uninspired. Now surprisingly DVDs of this film can sell for quite a bit of money because it's become quite rare. I, uh, I nearly had to shell out about £60 to get hold of it. It seems to be rare though because it's not that good so it hasn't been re-released at all. But it's the scarcity of it that seems to have raised the price, not the actual quality of the product. Now I didn't really want to spend that kind of money on a, a movie that I'd probably watch once and, and never watch again. And I really struggled to find it, so I reached out to a friend of the show, a, a lady by the name of Amanda, who does a podcast called Made for TV Mayhem, and she also has a blog too. They focus on TV movies, so I figured if anyone could find it, she could, and she did. So I have to send out my thanks to Amanda. I will place a link in the show notes with all the other links so that you can check out her podcast and blog. And she's actually going to do a review of this one on her blog to, to coincide with this release. So I will put that link in there as well when it's out if you want to have a read of what Amanda thinks. So thank you, Amanda. I appreciate it. So this time round, in the final showdown between Jerry Paul and Harvey Denton, they suit each other as they did in the previous version, but... That great speech that Rod Steiger gave has no equivalent in this one. The sheriff does say something before he dies, but it doesn't really have the same ring to it. Uh, I remember Christmas Eve 17 years ago. 
three young men wore bear skins. I was one of them. Along with my friend, Jared Paul. And wavy flag. Wouldn't you think after all these years that I could finally forget? He says that 17 years ago, him and his friend Jerry, another guy, wore bearskins. And what this is connecting to is a story that he told earlier on about an old Indian man who was murdered by three men, three young men, wearing bearskins. So it's kind of a, a horrible secret that he's kept all these years, like his counterpart in the original story. But it just doesn't seem to carry the same weight this time. This whole thing is an interesting curiosity, seeing what a different creative team will do with the same story. And it's an interesting chapter in the story of Dust, considering how many entries there are into it. If nothing else, the filmmakers were able to do one thing that Rod Serling would never have been allowed to do. They dedicate the film to the memory of Emmett Till. So now we have two radio versions. We have three different versions of A Town Has Turned to Dust. We have the Twilight Zone version of Dust and its novelization. So now the story of Dust has seven chapters. But while the Sci-Fi Channel movie is an interesting curio, this lacklustre production would be a sad place to leave a story that Rod Serling created with such good intentions. From the original radio script in 1950 to this TV movie in 1998, the story of Dust has spanned almost half a century. I don't think the Sci-Fi Channel version was made with any bad intent. They saw a good story and tried to do their best with it. It's a good effort, but it's not Rod Serling. And it's just a shame that after 50 years, this is the place that his story would end up. It needed to be reclaimed. It needed to be brought back to some form that honoured Rod Serling instead of this cheap imitation. But the question was, who was going to do it? You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are those of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. There was once a village, built of crumbling clay and rotting wood. It squatted ugly under a broiling sun, like a sick and mangy animal waiting to die. This village had a sickness shared by all its people. It was the germ of squalor, of hopelessness, of a loss of faith. But for the faithless, the hopeless, the misery-laden, there is always time, ample time, to engage in one of the favorite pursuits of men, to destroy themselves. In just a moment, a most unusual traveler will pay a visit to this village. 
He'll come riding down the dusty main street, not with bells and fanfare, but on a mule. It's not his first visit, and it won't be his last. But this time, he brings with him a gift that's for sale to the highest bidder. One already signed, sealed, and delivered in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast sometime in the 2000s. Written by Rod Serling and adapted for radio by Dennis Etchison. I've never really spoken much about the Twilight Zone radio dramas. They were produced in the 2000s. I don't know if they still make them now. They might. I figured I'd get round to doing something with them some way. And I don't think I'll ever review them individually. But I did at least hope to do an episode or two on them. But this seems to be the perfect place to at least introduce them. I think one of the reasons that we found it so difficult to accept updated versions of the Twilight Zone is that the original show was so inextricably linked to Rod Sailing. They were more than just stories, it was the whole atmosphere of the show, of which he was such a huge part. You know, it was beautifully shot in black and white, it was on film for the most part. We had this very unique man with a very unique voice as our host, bringing us into the Twilight Zone and then sending us on our way at the end. Much as we hope that we can enjoy a new Twilight Zone and it will be just as good without him, let's face it, it isn't. It was of its time and of its place. But for me, there is a certain magic to radio and hearing the stories in a different medium kinda eases that loss that we don't have to sit and look at the Twilight Zone that we know and love in black and white with Rod Serling speaking to us. The Twilight Zone on radio is just much more palatable than what we've been given on television since the original series ended. And it helps that when they decided to do it, they decided to do it well. They brought in named actors, people like Adam West, Jim Caviezel, and many, many more, and the stories are well produced and respectful. For the most part, Twilight Zone Radio features retellings of original Twilight Zone stories. Sometimes they feature little tweaks here and there that make them a little different from the original versions, but that only really serves to make them feel fresher and more enjoyable to listen to for people who are very familiar with the TV show. In the case of Dust, it is pretty much a straight adaptation of the Twilight Zone version, but there is one noticeable addition. In the original episode, after Sykes speaks about the magic dust to the little girl, the next time we see the old man, Louis' father, he has a bag full of gold coins for Sykes. He tells Sykes that he got the money from his friends and family, but we don't actually see that happen. In the radio version, we hear it happen, and we get that scene where the old man speaks to his family. We must help them. Pedro, what did they do to you? Nothing. They did nothing to me. What of your boy? Did you see Luis? See, I saw him. When is he coming home? The sheriff, will he spare him? The sheriff can do nothing. But he is a good man. The town is full of hate. They want to see death today. Blood for blood. Even a river of it will not be enough. Oh, my friend. We are so sorry. Come inside. We will pray with you. 
No, there is no time. It will be soon. Soon? But there is a way to change their hearts. A way? I must first pay a fee. How much? One hundred pesos. Hi. Where can we get one hundred pesos? My horse is worth fifty. Estreita. Yes? Run to my house. Tell my wife to bring the money she has saved. All of it. I will tell her. Manuel, get my horse. Oh, you needed to plow the fields. There are no crops because there is no water. You need your son. Oh, gracias. I will pay you back every peso. Go and tell the others. Bring their coins and their rings. We must save Luis. So I think it's played quite well and it shows the goodness of those people who only want to help. But it's actually played quite smart too. The old man never actually mentions the dust. The people who are so eager to help and give him money, if they knew he was going to buy a bag of magic dust with it, they might have thought, well, hold on a moment. Really? Is that what you're going to spend the money on? So it's, it's played quite well the way they do it. They're just like, yes, let's help and they don't actually get to bring up the magic dust. So is it any good? That's the thing. Well, I would say that if you like the episode dust, then you will enjoy the radio version. If you don't like the episode dust, then it's the same story. It is what it is. So you probably won't like the radio version. Now it might seem like a little bit of a cheat putting it in here with all these other versions of the dust story because it wasn't chosen for Twilight Zone Radio for any particular reason other than it is an episode of the Twilight Zone because I think pretty much all of those original episodes were adapted into these radio plays. But I think it's a fit and close to the story of Dust. Because Sailing's original script was for radio and while it's not the same version, I like that this is where it's ended up with his story and his words on the Twilight Zone, even if it isn't the same Twilight Zone. So in the end, the story of Dust has been 50 years in the making, and in a way, it is the story of the Twilight Zone. Rod Serling struggled to put real social issues on television, and then coming up with the genius move to hide his messages in plain sight in the Twilight Zone, a television show that continued to live in book form after the show finished and since its end others have tried to pick over what's left of it but rarely if ever match the quality of the original but sometimes as with twilight zone radio they get it right enough personally of the versions that survive i think i like the playhouse 90 version the most but I do wonder whether there's really been a version that shows the story to its full potential the way Sailing would have wanted it. But what I do think is that whether Rod Sailing was able to create the best version or not, the template that he created does lend itself to different versions, different interpretations. The man in the cell, the angry mob outside, and the lawman stood between them. You can mould that in so many ways, change people's motivations to make it different. Sometimes the man is guilty of nothing, sometimes he's actually guilty of something. He could be a good man, a bad man, the mob could be in the wrong. They could be good people doing the wrong thing 
for what they think is the right reasons. The sheriff can be a hero or a coward. You know, it's a template that's so beautiful in its simplicity that part of me is surprised that we only have eight versions of it. But let's not forget why Rod Serling created it in the first place. He tried to channel his disgust at the horrific story of Emmett Till into a story that he could put out there to expose prejudice and expose disparity of justice for black people at the time. Justice that allowed two men to act as executioners, murdering a black teenager, and then the two men who did it walked away scot-free. What you would hope is that Rod Serling would be given free reign to tell that story. You would hope that a network would say yes, tell the story because it needs to be told, because it's the right thing to do, but they didn't. But Rod Serling tried, and when Noon on Doomsday was neutered, he tried again with A Town Has Turned to Dust. And when that didn't come out as he hoped, he tried again with Dust. He even changed the game so that he could get his message out by hiding it in plain sight in the Twilight Zone. Maybe he never really made the version of that story that he wanted to make, but he didn't stop trying, and even if he didn't get to where he wanted to be, he would have made it that little bit easier for the next person who came along with a story to tell. Change doesn't always come easily, but if the story of dust has taught us anything, it's to keep trying and not to learn injustices like the story of Emmett Till be for nothing. That's what Rod Sailing did, and now it's up to the rest of us to try and carry on. It was a very small, misery-laden village on the day of a hanging, and of little historical consequence. And if there is any moral to it at all... Let's say that in any quest for magic, in any search for sorcery, witchery, leisure domain, first check the human heart. For inside this deep place is a wizardry that costs far more than a few pieces of gold. Tonight's case in point in the Twilight Zone.